our listeners and from the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, providing comprehensive reproductive and sexual health services for all women of all ages and all stages since 1984. Insurance, main care, dirigo, and self-pay accepted. MabelWadsworth.org. I'm Fritz Homans, and meet me every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4 at the Blues Station. We'll be departing on track 145 for a new destination every week, where we'll journey across the country in search of the best toe-tapping blues music around that's guaranteed to make your soul sing. The Blues Station, every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4, here on WERU 89.9 FM, and streaming live at WERU.org. Blues to make you feel good. All aboard for the Blues Station. Support for WERU comes from Penelope Shar, MD, integrative medicine practice in Bangor, offering detoxification, intravenous vitamins, bioidentical hormone therapies, and more. On the web at optionsinhealing.com or 217-8878. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Healthy Options with your host Rhonda Feynman is up next. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to Healthy Options. I'm Rhonda Feynman and I'm very happy to have Dr. Kendra Bryant with us in the studio today. And we're going to be discussing concussion management and how the brain can heal after trauma from brain injury. And Dr. Uh, Dr. Bryant is a clinical neuropsychologist and the founder of Neuropsychology and Concussion Management. It's a group practice in Rockport, Maine, which provides comprehensive neuropsychological services for children and adults. And such services include neuropsychological examination and concussion management, as well as cognitive wellness screening for adults. Dr. Bryan serves on the executive committee of the Maine Concussion Management Initiative and has been active in helping to establish concussion management programs with baseline cognitive testing of school athletes in area schools. And she also offers community education regarding concussions and brain injury. And as part of this mission of educating the community, Dr. Bryant is here with us today in the studio. Welcome to Healthy Options, Dr. Kendra Bryant. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Great to have you here. So, um... Let's start. What is neuropsychology? I mean, what, why would someone with a concussion, and we can talk about what that means too, come to someone like you? So usually neuropsychologists and concussion are, are involved when the person has cognitive complaints and, and cognitive complaints that don't go away quickly. Um, but a lot of neuropsychologists get more interested in the, the global injury itself and, and managing the person's activities and making sure that they have a good process in place to get healthy as quickly as possible. So it's more managing their wellness along the way. So, um, so let's talk about a, a little bit about who, what is a traumatic brain injury? What is uh, a concussion, concussion falls into that category and what does, what does that mean? So concussion is technically a mild traumatic brain injury, which I, I often say to patients, I, I hate to use that term for you because you're suffering so much and it doesn't feel mild. 
when you have it. But uh, it's mild in the sense that if you were to do an MRI of the head, you wouldn't see any structural change. So a mild traumatic brain injury or concussion is um, a functional change rather than a structural change in the Mm -hmm. brain, but can occur through many of the same mechanisms. So basically... Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Is there a swelling? We have this wonderful model, I have to tell you. It is so cool. Uh, Dr. Brian brought her her cool iPad with these great programs. So I'm looking right now at the structures of the brain. I wish you could see them. Okay. So I have this great uh, anatomy picture of, of white matter. And it's, it's not that if we were to look at a brain that had had a concussion that this picture would show us anything. No. The reason that I like the picture, and I wish people could see it, is that it, it shows... It looks like a mushroom. It's beautiful. <laughs> but it has all of these tracts. And your, your brain is, you know, it, it relies on this white matter to do anything. And if you have any disruption in the connections between cells in the brain at a functional level nothing works very well. You know, it's not that you lose language or that you've completely lost the ability to learn or remember anything, but nothing works well. Everything's harder. You're foggy. You're tired. You you don't think as quickly. You do have lapses in memory and trouble with concentration. And that's because of those disruptions. So, so cells aren't communicating very well at that time. So we've had, a, a, when we say trauma, people have car accidents. Some Some people don't have to black out to have it or... Do they or what? No, what, actually, what exactly if, if, are we talking about? If people took away nothing else from today, what I would really like people to know is that that is a, a misunderstanding that you have to have a loss of consciousness to have a concussion. And it's been a disservice to many people for many years that, you know, I, I will interview somebody who comes in for a question that has nothing to do with concussion. They're there for a comprehensive neuropsychological evaluation. They have some attention problems or their memory's not great. And when I take a history and ask them, okay, I find out that they played um, soccer throughout school. Well, did you ever have any concussions? No, you know, I had some bell ringers. I had some, you know, I took some hard hits. I felt a little off, but then I was fine. Um, so <laughs> the, the, that bell ringer terminology is something we've really tried in high school sports to get people to understand that's a concussion. You know, you don't have to have a loss of consciousness at all. You, you don't have to have anything really obvious at the time. Oftentimes the symptoms come on over time. It's on the bus on the way home from the game that you feel queasy. You, you feel really tired that night. You feel foggy. Um, and some people really tune into that and pay attention and do struggle with symptoms over time. And other people, they feel better the next day and they kind of dismiss it. But that was a concussion. So when we're saying, is there an inflammation? What, what happens to the brain? Well, so the hard thing is we can't open up somebody's brain and look at it after they've had one. Um, okay, don't, so don't, we, don't go there. <laughs> don't, let's not think about that for a moment. Okay. So the best we have is, is animal studies, uh, rats, I believe, where they have looked at what happens metabolically, and it's just a chemical change. The actual really? concussion is a chemical change that resolves, though, you know, within five to seven days. So, so, so what are the what changes? Uh, it's, oh, geez, really complicated oh. <laughs> hard to describe and people's eyes would glaze over. Um, but uh, basically the, the chemicals that should be in the cell versus outside the cell uh, are not acting appropriately. Are, are, these, the, are these transmitters, like neurotransmitters, are these chemicals that actually help us have the, 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 the brain cells talk to each other? Yes. Is that what we're yes. talking yes. about? Yes, yes. So we can... We, yes, I think exactly. we can handle that much. Yes. Yes. You, you we can, can, we can definitely can tell, do that much. It's you can a, even yeah. tell us more. I have a very uh, in, inquisitive uh, <laughs> listening audience. Um, 
So, so there's an interruption of, of that, that communication. Con communication and some of the symptoms. What would, would people be looking at? Um, so you certainly, yeah. you certainly can have the loss of consciousness. The other things that can tell us how serious a concussion is this, and actually that matter a lot more than loss of consciousness, are amnesia. So a person can... Uh, let's take the the student athlete example. They're in a game. They have a concussion. They don't remember anything that day before the game. Um, they so that would be retrograde amnesia. They can have, and that actually seems to be the most sensitive to a more complicated pattern of, mm -hmm. of difficulty with recovery. Mm -hmm. um, or they can just have anterior grade amnesia where they don't, you know, they get taken to the hospital, but the first thing they remember is being home that night or the next morning, and they just don't have those memories. And I often see patients come into the office and say, my memory's impaired. And when we talk about, well, what are your symptoms in daily life now, they will end up saying, well, it's not that, but I don't remember that whole day. And, and what I tell them is you, you won't, and that's fine. Your brain just didn't make those memories. But that's an indication of that injury, that chemical disruption during that mm -hmm. time period that those memories couldn't form. Um, <clears throat> the other symptoms then are, are headache, nausea, dizziness, balance problems. Um, at the time of injury some people do have vomiting and that's usually not a good sign no and, um but many people don't they just have mild queasiness or like i said they don't even develop that until later when they're in situations that bring those symptoms on and then not usually right away but over time the other things that tend to crop up are um cognitive issues that they do have difficulty with paying attention or difficulty with memory they feel foggy um, sensory symptoms usually happen right away, but can also worsen over time, which would be light sensitivity, noise sensitivity. Um, and then people can have uh, numbness and tingling is a symptom we check for, but that's often associated with the associated symptom issues with the injury, you know, whiplash. Right, if, if you've been rear-ended, yeah. you, you'll have whiplash perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Or, but it may not be from the whiplash. Right. And so, and often, um, in, in my experience too, as, as a practitioner, people uh, are dismissed. Well, you're caught, you're here, you're talking to me. And so there's not a recognition of what a brain injury is. Now, with that said, if someone has a traumatic brain, you know, a very serious, is there, what would be the difference between a, 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 a mild concussion and a serious brain injury? How would, how would that play out differently? Would, would there be structural if, changes? Yes. If we're talking about a serious injury, they would see something on the imaging, and they might have been prompted to actually do brain imaging because the person can't speak well or they oh, have okay. weakness on one side. Okay. You know, so they Falling would, off the roof, or, you know, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, or they have something penetrating from their head. They have a, you know, a stab wound or something like that, so something more obvious. Yeah. But you're right. The concussion often gets overlooked. You know, they're walking, they're talking, they're not right. vomiting. You're right. okay, go home. <laughs> right. Uh, now, of course, we're hearing about this a lot with football players and contact sports with kids, but adults are, are uh, do contact sports too. And and sometimes that's forgotten as well. Would you say it's an unre more recognized now, but in the past, something that wasn't treated or? Oh, very much so. Yeah. And and even now, I think we're, start, we're getting a little bit better about paying attention to concussion in professional sports and a little bit better about paying attention to it in our student athletes, but only a little bit better. And I mean, I think there's a lot of work right. to be done there. And then the people who really do not always get 
recognized or get care, good care, are the slip and fell on the ice adult or <clears throat> car accident or, you know, I've actually seen a couple of people where it was, you know, a household injury where they stood up quickly and slammed their head into something. You know, it really can be the most minor thing you would never think of, but... Yeah. So you look at the pupils. People always talk about that. What what kind of things are you doing that would help you determine what you're dealing with? So I, I don't do the sideline kind of evaluation that's immediate, but what they're looking at is is the, are the pupils appropriately so reacting to light and are they, yeah, those kinds of things, which can I- indicate a more serious injury if they see those pupillary defects at the time. Really? Yes. What does that tell us? That, that, that There could be swelling in the brain that's more, you know, that you, you would see on imaging and that could have catastrophic right. consequences. Okay. So that, and the imaging, t- like attention. MRIs, which are magnetic right. resonance, these are things that take pictures of what the brain looks like. Right. Although in the ER, and in, after an immediate, injury they would do a cat scan because what oh. they're usually looking for immediately what they're looking bleeding. for is bleeding right. and so the cat scan picks that up better and then later if there's still problems they would be looking at an MRI usually to to see if there's some injury that evolved over time mm-hmm. so someone could go into the ER after slip and fall or something like that and they look no your eyes are fine no you don't have a cut you're fine mm-hmm. just go home then they go home and Somehow things aren't right. I'm dizzy. I'm what, you know, what kind of things would prompt them to come to you? I think that often what happens is people go to the emergency room also with some other injury, especially after a car accident or a slip and fall. They go in and the attention is on the back or the wrist or whatever. And the head isn't really what's at issue. Uh, You know, the person's walking and talking and they seem fine. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, oftentimes because they are in pain and something just happened to them, they go home and they go to sleep and they don't do a lot for a couple of days. And maybe they feel okay or maybe they just don't even pay attention to how Mm -hmm. cognitively sharp are they or or those kinds of things. Um, And then they try to do something that's more normal in their life. They try to go to work or they try to drive or, and they, and those activities cause them to feel unwell. And so then they end up seeing somebody like me. Why am I not better? It's been five days. I don't, you know, I still, I don't feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and also, as I said, sometimes the symptoms don't happen right away. They do actually evolve. So yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. You would think you would know right away. So are you saying, could this be weeks? Or is it more no, days? No, it, it's more within a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, th- the stuff that will evolve over weeks is um, a person is trying to go about their usual business and they have a concussion and everything they're doing is aggravating it. And so they actually do feel worse over time. Their symptoms get worse, even though it's not that their brain is getting worse, but their symptoms are because every single day they're, they're challenging themselves in ways that are not allowing their brain to, to recover well. Um, so part you know, the main thing that I do with people, there's a few things I, I, I like to screen for some visual dysfunction and vestibular dysfunction that may need active treatment versus just time. But the biggest thing that everybody needs with concussion management is just understanding what activities are good for you and what activities are going to make this take longer to get over. So for example, we used to think that people had to rest completely physically and we didn't want them doing any aerobic type activity for until they felt better, until their symptoms were gone. Um, and we didn't pay a whole lot of attention to cognitive rest and sensory rest, like not watching TV. Um, and I would, now computers, Yes, what, what a computer would do to stimulate the brain is Correct, in multiple ways. Huge. Yeah. So now we pay more attention to the cognitive and sensory aspect, and we've actually done more research now to realize that people do better if they exercise. 
So not immediately, but within a week or two, if, even if their symptoms are going on, getting some physical activity is helpful, not harmful. The thing you have to be, you have to have been evaluated to see, do you have vestibular dysfunction? If you are not, if you can't tolerate your own head motion, quick movement, and you get in the pool and you do freestyle, you're not going to feel good. So <laughs> let's talk about vestibular movement. This has to do with balance. It has to do with nausea, with yeah. being able to... to uh... It's your, um, your brain processing information from the environment and from your own sensory input to know where you are in space and how Walking things are moving walls. around you and exactly and um and then involving the visual system it's coordinating the the visual input into that system so i you know you see something and you you have to respond to it physically in order to continue to track something in your environment for example you're going to be moving your head and moving your eyes in coordination and oftentimes people who aren't getting better really quickly that's one of the reasons why and so those people feel really unwell um, being a passenger in the car looking out the side window. Nauseating. Yeah. Um, those people... Or worse. Yeah. Can't drive. Right. Shouldn't drive. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those people might feel perfectly fine if they got a good half-hour workout on a stationary bike in a not-busy setting and feel awful if they went for a run because mm -hmm. because of the head movement involved in that and tracking things around them. So, right. so it's a matter of figuring out what is this person's specific profile of symptoms what is going to flare this person up versus what can we do to keep this person engaged in life and physically active mm -hmm. and not completely cognitively shut down to so that they get well faster so um we're also talking about things like light sensitivity then and inability to read it seems like you have to track in yes. order to read yes and not read on your ipad right that kind of thing right Usually screen reading will be the hardest for people, whereas book yeah. reading is not quite as hard. But again, it depends on what right. their issues are. If it's right. if they're very light sensitive, the screen's going to be terrible. Um, some patients after concussion do struggle with visual tracking. So um, you'll test their smooth pursuit, their ability to follow an object smoothly versus their ability to tar do targeted visual tasks, looking back and forth. Um, reading can involve some of all of that. Uh, people will also have... I think probably one of the more common visual things I see is convergence insufficiency. So, what does that um, mean? so what I'll do is I'll hold up a small object for them to target and hold it out from them a few feet and then move it toward their nose and ask them to try to stay focused on it and tell me when it gets to be double. And then I'll also watch their eyes. And you'll see sometimes in a patient with concussion, their eyes don't move together or one will come in as you would expect to be able to see that object up close and the other one won't mm. and it just it's really rather remarkable when you see that and it just doesn't move <laughs> and um, and that person will have double vision and trouble they'll get headaches and um, usually an achy feeling around their eyes or behind their eyes when they do a lot of reading or computer work so so you have to then think about that person's life what do they do for work are they a student do they work at a, you know a, a company where they have to be sitting in front of the computer nonstop? there are certain you know, work situations we have in the area where I've seen a number of people who work mm. there and it's very challenging to get them back to their mm. work setting because the work itself is, is so triggering to their particular symptoms. Now, well, as we're discussing this, and I, I think this will be uh, quite enlightening for a lot of people because um, <clears throat> they may not, this may not, they may associate with, associate it with something that happened and they may not, or they may have persistence and not know what, 
to do. And we can mm-hmm. talk a little bit about what you would do with this. But there's something else you said on, on your website and in our conversations that you don't have to have uh, actual hitting your head to have a concussion. Correct. And can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. We'll uh, an, another misperception that people have is um, they'll, they'll come in and say, well, yeah, I had this car accident, but I didn't hit my head. Mm-hmm. Well, probably not. Most of our cars have airbags now, and most people don't hit their head. Right. Um, but if you are it's, it's any time that you have a sudden acceleration, deceleration kind of situation. So y- your body is suddenly stopped when it's been going fast or or vice versa, could be slammed into motion. Um, what happens then is that your brain is moving very quickly in your skull with a force that is just not meant to happen, and that's what causes the damage. So it doesn't mm-hmm. – it, it can come because your head itself got hit or just because of that change in – sudden change in motion, mm-hmm. which disrupts all that connectivity in the brain. So can someone, you know – not even having a, 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 a quote car accident, but a, a needing to stop suddenly or mm-hmm. something like that, going from fast to slow. So even something like that, possibly for someone sensitive, could yes, definitely. If they're if they're sensitive, if, and that's people focus a lot on um, sort of judging the incident. Well, it wasn't that violent. It wasn't that bad. But it, everybody's different. And every single person, every incident they have has a different effect on them. So you really can't entirely predict. There are certain risk factors that we know about that may make a person more vulnerable or have more difficulty with recovery. But, you know... What would, what would that be? So... Well, we know that people who have a family history of migraine are more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem, and if you think about it, you know, a concussion can involve light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, nausea, and headache. Well, that's a migraine, essentially. Right. So um, they do seem to share a lot, um, symptom-wise, and people who have not necessarily a personal history, but just a family history, sometimes develop a migraine pattern that lasts beyond all of their other symptoms. Right. Um oftentimes resolving within a year or two and sometimes maybe not and maybe they never would have developed that or maybe they would have because they were vulnerable to it anyway you know we don't really know Mm -hmm. but that sets people up for more complex situation Um, people who have a a history of motion sickness seem to be more vulnerable to that kind of vestibular nausea uh, dizziness kind of complex um, and then less understood, um, people who have a history of ADHD seem to struggle a little bit more cognitively getting back to things. Um, and it's, it's a little hard to know with that one if it just – that's a vulnerability for them anyway. So they, they challenge to get back into it or we're not really sure what, quite what to make of that one. But it does seem to be a risk factor and anxiety seems to be a bit of a risk factor as well. And when I, we'll talk about that anxiety, depression that can happen. Um, if you've just tuned in, I just want to let you know that you're uh, tuned to Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and we are in the studio with neuropsychologist Dr. Kendra Bryant. And uh, we're learning all about concussions right now. We're discussing what those symptoms may be, and some people may be surprised to know that um, you may be suffering from the after effects of a concussion that you didn't realize if you've had some of these, um, some of the things we're talking about um, after an issue that you recognize or some that you may not recognize. So there's some vulnerability that can happen. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, what is part of an evaluation? What, how would you deal with someone who comes in and says, you know, this happened three weeks ago, or I, I, I'm not even sure why this 
mm-hmm. why I'm having these sensations. What, wh- how would you approach that? What is an exam like? So the first part is is a thorough history, understanding if they are presenting a particular injury situation, an accident, or um, is to get all of the what happened with that, what were the mm-hmm. um, dynamics of the injury. I, I said before, you know, that people try to judge the seriousness and, and in many ways shouldn't, but I will say... Um, Sometimes people come in and they're really minimizing something that happened, but when you find out about the specifics of the situation, for example, a car accident, maybe it was very low speed, but they spun. And um, or with a sport injury when they're uh, blindsided, and so there's a rotational force to the head that does seem to be more damaging. So getting those kinds of pieces of information can help sometimes understand why somebody is still suffering when you might have thought it wasn't a big deal. Um, so there's just getting all of those pieces of information and the the old potential risk factors and how many ha- have they had before, if any, because um, that certainly is a risk factor for having more difficulty eventually with a, with a head injury. Um, so then there's checking the visual movement, the eye movement. and I'm very interested in that. Let's talk more about okay. eyes. Yes, because I actually have been speaking with a number of people about concussions, and I told them about this show, and they're very in, uh, interested. Um, and then I said, well, we have to look at the eyes. And there was a great, what, what do you mean? What? Why would I need to see an eye doctor? Or what would that, so mm-hmm. here's our opportunity. I'll stop talking. <laughs> so usually, and sometimes people come in and they say they have seen their eye doctor and their eyes are Nothing. fine. There's nothing. And so that's not surprising because usually, but not always, people's prescription per se doesn't change. Um, so what what does sometimes change in head injury, and I find often to be the case uh, when people aren't getting better quickly, is that their eyes just don't move well together. Uh, they don't come together closely to have binocular vision for things like reading or knitting or anything that you would do where you have something close up to you. Their eyes aren't moving together to do that. Or their eyes don't track as quickly or as easily or smoothly um, as they should so that reading then, as we were saying, causes that achy feeling. So I would test um, smooth pursuit eye movement so they follow my finger back and forth. I would test uh, saccadic movement so they have to look quickly from one finger to another. Um, then test convergence, so bringing a point close to them to see if they can do that. Um, that then we move into more the integrated, the, the uh, vestibular aspect integrated with visual, so I'll leave that off for now. But um, one of the important things to that is that even if they have seen an, a neurologist or somebody who's done that kind of thing with them, the, the typical exam, say in an ER, uh, may do those things but not do them in the way that somebody managing concussions would usually do them. So what we do that's a little different is uh, we make them do it a little bit more, a little bit longer, and tell them to do it as quickly as they can, and then we ask them about symptoms. So we're watching them and watching to see whether their eyes can do it in terms of our own ability to observe, but we're also interested in does the person say, wow, that made my, I have this ache in my temples now, or or that did make me feel dizzy, which sometimes happens with the eye movement. Um, I'll also give them a little test where they have to uh, as quickly as they can read some uh, numbers on a page that are printed in some ways, somewhat challenging ways uh, to see if they do things like skip a line, jump, or if they're just very slow. And again, what symptoms does that bring on for them? Um, and the reason, well, I screen for that for two reasons. One is to help me figure out how to manage their life activities without flaring up their symptoms every day so that they can get better faster. 
And the other reason is because very often that doesn't go away on its own. If it's if it's there a few weeks later, it doesn't necessarily just resolve with managing activities. Sometimes it actually needs treatment. Would you say that's part of the chemical changes as well? Or no, I, this seems more functional yeah. as in a structural, something yes. shifted in the... Yes, and I don't think, I, you know, I, I certainly don't know, and I don't think we know um, the exact cause of that. All I would really say is that there's so much of that connectivity we were talking about earlier that is necessary for any cells to communicate and do anything. So much of that is about vision, and it has to travel, you know, from the front of the skull to the back of the skull. And so there's a lot of opportunity for some subtle microscopic damage there that can heal. Um, but but there's certainly that possibility in terms of explaining it. Um, the other thing is um, if people, if their eyes are not functioning very well for a short time after, but they keep doing their visual activities, they may be sort of adjusting in a way that their brain is getting used to processing information in a certain way that... Um, then they're stuck in a pattern that might cause them other problems. Like sometimes I've seen, I, I see patients and I'll, I'll see their eyes are off set on, you know, their midline perception is off. And one of the things I'll notice about them sometimes is that their posture as they're doing things is off as well in a kind of complementary sort of way. And they're complaining of neck pain that kind of makes sense when you look at that. So it's, it's kind of teasing apart the puzzle and seeing um, how is this all fitting together for this patient and who do they need to see to treat those pieces to... We'll get into that in a second, but I'm so interested in, and I want people to really think about that for a minute. If you have had some sort of injury and now you are having some neck pain or lower back pain that's different than the whiplash or whatever, that you really can perhaps attribute it to compensating to your body, which is wants to be homeostatic, the body wants to heal, Right. to make it work so that you can do your life. However, that really is a sign that, that there's something that is still not healed. Right. And you'll see it, um, so as you integrate the vision and the vestibular system, if a person has a shift in their perception of midline, uh, so they're off, they, they may be kind of bumping into walls, accidentally stepping off curbs. They may be more vulnerable to injury, dropping things. I saw a woman recently who was you know, just horrified that she kept accidentally kicking her dog, a little dog, you know, and, and so it was in her way and, and she didn't see it. It just wasn't in, in where Whoops. she was looking. Yeah. And once she corrected that midline perception, it was fine. So how do you treat that? Well, I know. I you, don't. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but who, tell us, yeah. I, I know that, that yeah. there are people you work with and, and the kind of treatment that, that, would be required. Yeah. So if I see that, that we might have to get those people in here for yeah, another show. But yeah. anyway. So if I see that that uh, the the person actually seems to, because I can only screen for it, but if if it all kind of fits together and they seem to have a shift in how they're perceiving things, um, I send them to a neurobehavioral optometrist who really can do obviously a much more elaborate examination of that, which, as I understand, takes a couple of hours at least. <laughs> and uh, then if they find what I think they find, they prescribe glasses, um, sometimes exercises, but they're not glasses to correct your, it's not like what you would get when you mm-hmm. can't see well far off and you have a prescription for that. It's um, glasses that help your help reprocess that toward uh, midline and they so, have a prism. So I wish, I wish, I wish, uh, I think it's, it's, I wish you were somewhere were here right now and we could talk about that, but I do know a little bit that, <clears throat> so you were looking, when we talk about convergence, we're talking about images being able to come together and come up part sort of like the where's 
we're, um, the, the magic eye books, for okay. instance, mm-hmm. are, mm-hmm. you know, you're trying to find things uh, that come together or even back to the stereoscope. Those old stereoscopes, if people are familiar, where you have two images and you have that machine, you know, little viewing thing, yeah. and then it comes together in 3D. Yes. Mm-hmm. You would have a problem. If you, if you don't have a convergence, your eye's not converging, you would have a problem having that merge and seeing the 3D image. Mm-hmm. And some of the ways, they, they do that with color therapy, I believe, and different colors and different ways of having the eyes practice going in and out. I yeah, think that's or even, part of it. even very simply, if somebody doesn't have the midline shift and they just have problems with converging and diverging, as you've just mm-hmm. described, um, they can just do something simple that we call pencil push-ups. And they're just practicing. They're just, they're just working those eye muscles, really, and being able to bring both eyes together smoothly so that the object comes together. You mean you, mean you have a pencil on your... Yeah. And you bring it in toward you, and it gets double, and you back it off, and you look away, right. and you look back. and you, you right. know, So you're literally working those muscles. So you're teaching the nervous system. Correct. As well... Uh, because that's the one thing we haven't discussed yet. The, how does that? How does the nervous system? I know those chemicals are happening, but what else is happening? First, we have trauma, you know, so we're in right. shock a little bit. Right. Um, and then what? Well, initially you have those chemical changes, but as I said, those resolve within days. But we people deal with these symptoms for many months sometimes. Right. So, and we don't we don't know why. Um, you know, there, yeah. there's multiple opinions about that and thoughts sure. about that. My thinking is, well, let me say this. We do, we do know from studies that the, uh, some people show changes in the white matter integrity. So white matter is what coats your axons. Those axons are how your cells communicate. Um, if you don't have that insulation around your axons, that communication isn't going to be smooth and quick. So if you have little, they call it mechanoporation, so little tiny pores opening up in the axon, uh, you're going to have some disruption in that communication. Um, so we do have studies that show that. Um, we also have studies that show um, changes in the metabolism such that a person isn't using a particular area of the brain in the same way. They're not um, getting as much oxygenation to that area or or. or I guess, calling for it in the same way. And on the flip side, maybe using more in other areas and more brain real estate, let's say, to accomplish the same task. Yes. So so it's, there's been a little bit of trouble in interpreting those studies because they are seen as um, contradicting each other in a way because we have studies that say, oh, you have less metabolism after injury and studies that say you have more. But mm. then people are starting to talk about, I think rightly, that you may have less effective metabolism in some areas and therefore the brain is calling for more resources to accomplish the same thing. In hard other to areas. learn, hard to yeah, and so that focus, accounts to... for again. It's it's not that the person can't do the task. Maybe they can go to school and they can learn something, but by the end of the day, in the last period, they really can't because they don't have the stamina. They've used up all their resources. They're exhausted. Mm-hmm. They're foggy. Their symptoms are coming back. Mm-hmm. So it's more that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. It's not the loss of an of a specific ability so much as how much you can do, how easily. Mm-hmm. So um, this the so so the, this the individual a neuro op, n- neurobehavioral neuros- optometrist yeah so um, we'll give you we'll evaluate that kind of thing and when you've seen people who've done the exercises and are been diligent what 
it's remarkable well and also the the, if they prescribe glasses i and there are some people who are just feeling so awful and not functioning much in their life at all that i've seen go do that and get glasses and for many of them there's an immediate change in how well they can function well we even know we have to get get exactly again a little outside my expertise but what you know as much as i do know is that there there are very specific prisms in them that help the the eyes yeah but not 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 the general kind that we're maybe more familiar with and yeah. so again but, totally but outside just, my no but that's okay but i think people but it's remarkable no yes. it's, it's mm-hmm. remarkable and then some people don't even need the exercises because wearing the glasses and doing going about your business using your eyes is essentially your exercise other people do need more of the structured mm-hmm. exercises so sometimes if there's lingering symptoms that would be something to consider and it's not often the what even some family docs would think about right Right, and so, it can make a big difference. And I th- if you yeah. think about... So you have to go ask. Yeah, if you think about how that all affects your life, you know, you can't read comfortably, you, your eyes mm-hmm. get tired too quickly, you are off balance because you're walking around funny. Mm-hmm. Um, people become very anxious and depressed sometimes. It just, over time, that, that becomes a whole other issue. And if you can treat the underlying thing that's causing the person not to be able to function so much and enjoy their life so much, then some of the other symptoms mm-hmm. will go away. So I would imagine that there could be people, some maybe not familiar with these kinds of, of, of connections, would get stuck on the branch. Oh, you're depressed. Here's your antidepressant. Right. You're anxious. You know. Yes. They wouldn't send them to me necessarily, or to, <laughs> right. but which which they should. But uh, <laughs> they should. I'm just saying it. Oh, the should the should family moved in. There goes the neighborhood, as we all say. Sorry. All right. Or my colleagues and your colleagues. Um, but but there is then there is so then you you kind of go down the slippery slope. You're really your problem really isn't being addressed. Right. And and that's more of the symptom, but we have to get to the root. Right. right. And certainly that you know a person can have depression and anxiety after an injury over time and not have the visual dysfunction. It's not to yes. say that. Yeah. No. No. You know, and then you do treat that symptomatically in whatever yes. direction you would normally yes. go for such a thing, but. Um, but often, I do find it's more the physical underlying situation that hasn't mm-hmm. been addressed that's just leading to a mm-hmm. whole other slew of problems. So you're also then, you said you were starting to talk about going to the vestibular. That's where you're also looking at balance? Yes. Or, mm-hmm. You're looking at balance and a person's tolerance for motion, both their own motion, say turning your head side to side quickly, mm-hmm. um, or watching cars drive by. So uh, one of the things that I'll often tell people who have any vestibular symptoms after a concussion is, don't look out the window in the car and especially don't look out the side window and don't right. sit in an intersection watching cars go by because right. it's just kind of that tracking of motion that makes them feel nauseated mm-hmm. and lightheaded. Um, but they they will also not necessarily be able to walk heel to toe or stand with their feet together with their eyes closed, those sorts of things that people often say, oh, this is like a sobriety test. It, it kind of is, you know, because that's kind of what it is feels like, I guess, mm-hmm. if you have that kind of injury, the vestibular injury. Mm. Um, They also will not, uh, in terms of testing in the office, we'll have them look at a fixed point and turn their head back and forth while their eyes stay on that point. So their eyes are having to adjust to the head motion. Mm -hmm. And if a person does that and does it quickly, as we ask them to, they may do it just fine. So again, your observation may be, oh, they can do that. That system's intact. But then sometimes you can see it all over their face and other times they tell you they felt really dizzy or really nauseated. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they just kind of turn white and you want to grab a waist can because <laughs> <Sit down. laughs> oh, it really oh, right, makes them right, feel right. quite unwell sometimes. Right. Yeah. 
And uh, so, um, and then the treatment review working with craniosacral so, people? Or? Yeah, there's a, a variety of yeah, ways so to go with then? that. Um, a, again, not a treatment I can implement so much no. as direct people toward because sure. sometimes it's so bad that they can't even get in a car to go to their doctor's appointments or their whatever right. the therapies sure. are that they need. Um, so sometimes their physician will prescribe a medication sure. that helps them tolerate that so they can get the treatment they need for a while and then they sure. don't need it anymore. But the vestibular therapy is actually kind of like doing the exam itself, only slowing it down so that a person is, say, moving their head back and forth only as quickly as they can do with just a small amount of dizziness and then and sitting and with a blank background. And then gradually over time, as they can go faster, you have them have a busy background to look at while they do that, or you have them do it in standing so it's challenging their system a little bit more. So it's basically retraining the brain to process that stuff comfortably. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they may go through a, a process like that, which is usually with a physical therapist or an occupational therapist who has that specialized training. Um, or you made mention already of cranial uh, treatment. I uh, have seen a particular school of cranial manual therapy be really helpful for those people, both for headache, but also for that fogginess, dizziness, nauseated kind of feeling that they seem to feel much better after that treatment. What school? What is there differences? Well, I, we, I don't think people even knew that. But, yeah, so yeah. again, outside yeah. my scope, but here's what I've yeah. learned over time both as a as a receiver of such treatment and and what I see patients have mm-hmm. um that there's a lot of very good cranial therapy to be offered out there but that there um there are different approaches to mm-hmm. that and what I've seen be more effective for concussion patients is a, a, a much more kind of focal approach where they're identifying a particular area in which things are stuck structurally stuck and they're oh. treating that as opposed to I more see. of a general treatment that a lot mm-hmm. of cranial therapists will do mm-hmm. that are very helpful yes in, totally in other situations or even for these patients to an extent mm-hmm. but I find that particular structural one to be very helpful so, so let me just just very quickly for those who just joined us. Uh, this is Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio. I'm your host, Rhonda Feynman, and we're speaking today with Dr. Kendra Bryant. She's a board-certified clinical neuropsychologist and founder of Neuropsychology and Concussion Management Associates in Rockport, Maine. So we're getting to uh, some very interesting ideas about differences in craniosacral work and uh, and ways of treating concussions and traumatic brain injuries. So what we were talking about is um, specific, tailoring something specifically to the area, the individual's need of right. what we noticed from your evaluation. So, so they would, you would communicate with a practitioner and yes. say, uh, they would bring something in and go, this is where in, through the testing that we've done, we see this area. And then of course the practitioner will do what, use their hands and, and into right. it, you know, that, that the touch is what it is to, right. to know how to work on that particular area. So it's not so generalized. It becomes, ah, and when you're saying specific, are you talking about a part of the brain? Are you saying it's the frontal or lobe or, you know, I mean, what, what do you mean by that? I'm uh, just curious. Yeah. So uh, I know more, I always get you, people to talk more specifically. And No, no, and, and I, I just, they, I have to say to, again, not my area of practice, right. but so the well, language you, that I hear back from the people yes. doing this work where I see good results in the yes. patients are things like, um, the the sphenoid uh, or the temporal bones flexion and movement that right. was Something not happening. Case. Yeah. So you yeah. give your assessment that they were falling over. That it's a vestibular issue. Mm-hmm. It's a 
you know, that, I guess that's visual. the language, the, right. the visual. So I'm just really giving those pieces, and it, yes. it's then up to the, if, if they're going to have cranial work, it's right. then they're really deciding what that dysfunction is. What that means. I will suggest mm-hmm. that for a person who really just wants to accelerate their recovery as much as possible and um, mm-hmm. has had a blow to the head, um, certainly I, I feel more inclined to suggest they might want to think about it then. Or if they're having mm-hmm. headaches that are, I can't identify triggers that I can otherwise get to be resolved. Um, but Smell, the, food. Or, yeah, yeah, or um, or if the headache is reading. about reading, you know, and, mm-hmm. I, and I see visual dysfunction and I can tell them we can accommodate their reading in some way or, or minimize it. Um, if I can't identify those things but they're having headaches that just aren't getting better, then that's another reason that I would suggest mm-hmm. a person do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, some people also will, especially if they have a family history of migraine, they'll end up with neurology and, and looking at medications to really sure. prevent prevent the headaches, not just mm-hmm. treat them when they have them. Right. So so that is so interesting. that Right. So you're getting the sphenoid. That's a, that's a particular beautiful bone right <laughs> behind in the face. Um, so, so someone with training who can then translate, oh, okay. Thank you. I've gotten this information, and now I'm going to see what your body tells me. But now we're going to really focus on this particular. Right. Find the dysfunction and correct This particular, whatever reason, you, whatever, trauma, whatever it is, we're going to work on that particular part of you. And, you know, and I know from my training, it could be something, you know, it's your head. We all think this is concussion. This is all about our brains. Mm -hmm. But it actually could be your left hip. It could actually be your right knee. You know, there are ways that something gets blocked and that uh, doesn't allow that the connections to happen. Right. That could that can really uh, make such a, a huge difference. For I was going to say it's all connected, and you and you know we, you want to do what you can to help the person heal, basically, mm-hmm. and and so mm-hmm. I think that seems to open up some healing for some people. They come right. out feeling less foggy all of a sudden and um, and experiencing change that seems to last and they build on that as opposed to, oh, I feel better in the moment, but then not so much. Not so much after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there are other aspects. So if you're dealing with ch- kids, for instance, in school, are you working with the school? Do you send a report? you say this kid... You know, this child needs this or half a day or... Yes. You know, how do you work with the children? I I think that's one of the more helpful things to do to get kids better in the speediest way possible without secondary consequences is to really have a very specific school plan for each child. So it does depend. Maybe they don't have visual issues and they can do their reading or they don't have light sensitivity. They can Mm -hmm. look at screens and things. Or maybe they do and they can't and we have to have audiobooks and somebody reading to them for a little while until that's corrected uh-huh. or larger print may be helpful or, you know, there's all kinds of thing, ways in which we can accommodate that. And again, it's really very specific. There's not a one-size-fits-all prescription for return to school. Um, sure. If you have a kid with a lot of vestibular dysfunction, one of the things that I have them do is uh, not walk through the hallways when everybody else is changing classes. So, Way overstimulating. Exactly. It's, it's loud. It's busy. There's a lot of motion. You're getting jostled. Um, so they already don't feel good by the time they get to their classroom. It's not the learning in the classroom that's the problem. It's the environment around the situation. So 
I think you can get more learning happening sooner if you recognize those components and treat them specifically for each individual. And there's so many ways to accommodate that. You know, they don't go to the cafeteria. They don't do the hallways during transition. They don't uh, stand around at the buses outside. They don't go to the assemblies. You know, there are certain things we can limit and they still get to be in the classroom and learn something. So I also, we didn't even talk about the cognitive testing, which Let's really do that is. Right now. We have <laughs> time is, now. Let, we're moving into cognitive testing. So, um, I don't usually test people the first time they come in. It depends. If they're feeling really unwell, the first thing I want to do is identify those other components and try to get the symptoms to settle down as much as we can. But I, I test children before they go back to school um, to see, are, are they capable of learning? Are they still too foggy and it's just not worth it? I mean, if... If I test them and they can't learn information and remember it at all, what's the point of trying to put them in, a, in that environment and tax them more? Why don't we get more recovery first and, and then try it? Um, if I test them and they can learn, you know, a little, and so maybe it's worth being in the classroom, but they're having trouble recalling information without prompts or cues or recognition tactics, I then would not have them be tested. You know, they may go to school and they may learn, but we wouldn't have them doing testing until... What, what is it, what is it, how do you determine that? What does a cognitive test mean? Where do you have them re, or, I mean, adults too, I would imagine, yeah. you know. And it's, it's quite answer. variable how much we do and what we do exactly. If mm -hmm. somebody comes in and their injury was a year or two ago and they're still not better, we're probably doing a full day of evaluation where we're doing, we're, we're looking at say verbal memory, we'll test it in th a few different ways. You know, we'll, we'll read them a story and have them repeat it. We'll give them a list of words multiple times and have them repeat it. We'll then have them recall it later, that kind of thing. Um, if, if it's a more recent injury, we're usually doing very brief testing, maybe half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. But again, looking at can they pay attention to listening to some information for a few minutes without losing track? Can they do what we call working memory? So they, they're given some information and they have to use it in some way, like solve a math problem in their head um, or repeat something backwards. So they have to kind of hold it and <laughs> shift it. Um, so we'll check that out and then we'll test can they learn and can they later recall that information so that we know if they're really ready for, for the learning environment again. With adults, um, it's similar, but it, it really depends on their work situation. I'm not necessarily going to do that to somebody who cuts trees for a living um, unless they're concerned about their memory or something and we mm -hmm. and we want to look at that but in terms of whether or not they can go back to work oh, mm -hmm. I'm probably not going to test can they well, remember I don't know if you're words. working with a chainsaw I would you know there's other things you want to test you want to test motor function and attention I mean you definitely want to test attention there. and yeah. things but I don't you know, yeah, yeah. you know, so I, yeah. you understand. But so you want to tailor it to the person and their and their life and what they need yeah. and what their symptoms yeah. are. Mm -hmm. And I don't want you know, I don't want to torture people if they're feeling awful. I'm not probably going to do that yet sure. if we're not looking at mm -hmm. adding to their demands in life. Do you do writing as well, motor? Um, in a full day, in a full day evaluation mm -hmm. or a longer, more comprehensive mm -hmm. for an old injury, we would, but not necessarily. Um, and the funny thing is, as I was going to say, not necessarily for kids where it's a recent injury and we're returning them to school. You would think we probably should, except most of them don't write anymore. That's yeah. all on oh, the computer. Oh, yeah, that is a little scary. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so, no, not that's so much. That's another conversation. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Um, I, I will say, related to that, though, I, I think it's probably very different working with concussions in schools now, not just because of how much more we know, but how much they're relying on tablets and laptops and whiteboards. They're called various yes. things, whiteboards, smartboards. There's a few right. different terms for them, but 
those are terrible for kids with concussions. So, uh, you know, and, and questionable about yeah. kids who don't have concussions. Yeah, but again, the other yeah. numbers. Well, right, that's another show. different topic. But um, so the, you know, those kids. I, I sometimes just have people go back to class and sit there with their eyes closed and listen and get notes given to them later, so that they don't have to use their eyes in the classroom because all, all that technology is, I think, much more difficult. Mm-hmm. So writing, um, y- you know it. It's not a common complaint um, for people recovering from concussion, except at a very, like people who do some writing for work, so kind of a higher level of writing and under under demand for production more. Um, I guess I've had, you know, one or two adults Mm -hmm. with long ago injuries have that complaint, but it's not something I've really heard come Mm -hmm. up with with kids. It's more remembering information for rote kind of memorization testing and just being simply being able to pay attention and being able to get through the school day without having a horrible headache. That's Mm -hmm. the big thing. So one of the things almost everybody that we send back to school, we have them um, pay attention to if they're getting a headache and if they are either if we think they have a lot of visual issues, close their eyes and rest for a few minutes in class, just kind of tune things out um, and not have any visual input. And if it backs off, then maybe they can just listen again for a while. If it doesn't, we have them go rest Mm -hmm. with a nurse until they're feeling better and then maybe try another class Mm -hmm. and then go home, though, if it comes back. Because we're trying not to have a pattern either within a day where they end up with a worsening headache or from day to day. You know, maybe they tolerate Monday and Tuesday just fine, but by Friday they feel awful, and yes. we we want to avoid that too. Mm-hmm. So with the with adults, and I know you do a lot of work with um, with different kinds of uh, cognitive testing, not necessarily associated with trauma, but functional Alzheimer's possible possibilities. How how would that differ from what we've been talking about? You were talking about some baseline training and, and uh, testing so the base what does that mean baseline testing for for concussion management purposes is um usually i usually use impact which is a specific computerized test so it's about 25 minutes long and it it's highly demanding of speed of processing and reaction time and in a way that a computer can measure better than i can with other instruments and so that's a good it, it also tests memory and so that's a good thing to have as a baseline if the person really tried and the conditions were good uh, because then you know what looks normal for them. And people often feel symptomatically better before their brain shows that it's functioning back to normal, both on cognitive tests oh, and, and on imaging. When we do uh, functional imaging where we look at um, ha- how a person is using resources in order to accomplish a task, uh, that doesn't get better sometimes until after the symptoms. So that would be for the... Um, concussion type management for for baseline testing for other people and sort of more wellness testing we put in other measures that we know would be more sensitive if the person were just beginning to develop uh, signs of dementia. So, for example, um, what we call verbal fluency tasks, where they have to quickly think of words that fit in a certain defined category. Um, so that so it's different depending on the purpose, but the uh, concussion. Baseline testing is like half an hour, and then if we're doing more wellness testing for an adult, it's more like an hour and a half because we do have to test some different areas. Mm-hmm. So um, forgetting words is mm-hmm. not necessarily a, a, a pathological symptom. Not in so, the least. Yes. <laughs> I, I just all of you sitting out there who just had a grip, and the elderly over 40, as we yeah, say, who said, right. give that, me that, what, what do you what call it, thing that, you know, the pen, the thing that you do with paper. That's right. an excellent point. We yes. forget names at a certain point, and we start re- walking into rooms and not knowing why we're there, and that's very normal. <laughs> 
So on the testing, how would it show up if that's not normal? Um, well, it, we, we compare people to their age group. So it's very normal for somebody in their 40s or 50s to have those occasional lapses. Mm -hmm. um, it's not normal to really not be able to do it at all or have that be happening constantly. Right. Although there's a million potential explanations Just for, for that, not all, not all of which are so dramatic as dementia, you know. Yes. Um, some of them can be temporary things, stress. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, medication. Medication effects, stress mm -hmm. effects, definitely. Stress. Not sleeping well. Mm -hmm. Which is another thing about concussion, which I, we, yes. we haven't really talked about, is that people do have a lot of sleep disruption in both directions with concussion. And so one of the things sometimes we have to target for people as a focus is if you have somebody who really isn't able to sleep, whether it's because of pain or it's just kind of random, the system's just too ramped up, you have to treat that because if the, if the body can't rest, if the brain can't rest, it's not healing. And healing happens through sleep. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But so. then those sleeping... Well, is, can you sleep too much? You can. And so um, we do ask people typically, in most situations, we ask people not to nap um, so that they are tired to go to sleep at a normal time and then they sleep well. I usually tell people, you know, initially anyway, don't make yourself get up early or to an alarm, but don't nap. Mm -hmm. Because, yes, you can sleep too much. That can cause other issues. Mm -hmm. Other issues? Uh-oh. <laughs> Well, <laughs> lack of activity, get oh, depressed, yeah. get isolated. Right, right, right. Uh, okay. Postural people will lie on the couch and watch oh. TV, and oh. they end up with a kink in their neck. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Yes. We have to be specific around that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, uh, this, so sleep is, though, uh, an important part of healing. Absolutely. Yeah. So, In any condition, it, there's... Yes. Um, it's on, heard of or saw, I don't remember anymore where it came from, but it was just sort of a news story um, talking about some research looking at um, cerebrospinal fluid and it being uh, created and that it didn't happen until we went to sleep and that that's when that happens. And mm. so all of the um, all of the recovery that our brains do, there's there's toxins created in that healing process. There's sort of byproducts and those have to be removed and they get removed from that process, the cerebrospinal fluid. And so... Obviously, you need to be creating it, and apparently, to create it, you need to sleep. <laughs> I imagine you need to hydrate as well. Yes. 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 You need to stay hydrated. You know, not not drink alcohol, not be doing anything else that might right impair your function. Yeah. Yeah. Ca caffeine. So people who have ADHD will often ask about ADHD medication, um, and I. People often have already gone off of it, and, and I don't see any problem in that, assuming it's something they can safely go off of and all of that. Um, but they want they, they kind of assume they shouldn't take it again until they're totally better for some reason. And But because the concussion itself creates what can feel like ADHD in terms of the cognitive effects, I do encourage people to go back to that when they're going back to their function, their, their school or their job. Mm -hmm. um, but who knows, with all this great treatment, maybe they won't need that anymore. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Just a thought. Another topic. Another topic. <laughs> uh, well, this has been uh, quite delightful. We we uh, just wanted to, to uh, tell everybody that um, that uh, we've been you're listening to Healthy Options, and uh, our guest today is Dr. Kendra Bryant. Uh, she's um, a uh, neuropsychologist and as founder of New Neuropsychology and Concussion Management in uh, Rockport, Maine. And what, what is the uh, website if people want more information there? Uh, www.ncma, so that's N as in Nancy, C, M as in Maine, A, 
uh, and then the state of Maine spelled out, so ncmamaine.com. That's great. And um, if you've missed any of the show, it'll be archived later on in the Public Affairs Archives at WERU. And I want to thank you so much. Is there anything, one last thing? No, I think we, I think we did a, a lot. We have a lot. More, you'll have to come back. Thanks so much to Dr. Kendra Bryant for being here today. Thanks for Amy Brown for engineering, to Petra Hall for her production assistance. And I am Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health. Support for WERU comes from our